Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to the 100th episode of Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's Milestone episode, I'm honoured to speak with comic book legend and absolutely charming chap, Charlie Adlard, about what comics he would take into a zombie outbreak apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the Comic Scene Comic Club. Available from just £5 a month, you can get monthly issues of the History of Comics 1930-2030, to monthly issues of the brand new Shift comic anthology, and two Comic Scene specials per year. To find out more and subscribe to the Comic Club, visit comicscene.org. Also, I'd like to make you aware that in the next few weeks, I'll be launching a Kickstarter for an oversized hardcover edition of the Milford Green Saga. If you haven't come across Milford Green before, it's my Victorian space adventure series that follows Alfie Fairfield and Mary Wells as they battle aliens here on Earth and beyond. To find out more and sign up to the pre-launch Kickstarter page, click the link in the show notes or go to www.tinyurl.com forward slash the Milford Green Saga. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Charlie Adlard. How's it going? It's going pretty well, thanks, Sam. Well, <laughs> well considering, I suppose. <laughs> considering many things. Yeah, but yeah, one yeah. of them was that we just had some real technical mishaps there my usual raw recording software was being very very funky and they've kind of recently changed things with not supporting firefox and updating to a beta version and oh oh well that's like that's what i say yeah (laughs) exactly um now um honestly it is an absolute honor to have you as our 100th guest here on comics for the apocalypse (laughs) yes thank you um and the the reason for that really is because um the walking dead is how i really got into comics in the first place about about seven years ago um so i i wasn't i mean i read the beano and the dandy and whatnot when i was younger but uh, i was never into comics kind of through my teenage years and through my 20s so it wasn't until my 30s that i actually started getting into comics and that was a, a result of having watched the walking dead the tv show of course um but then finding out that it was based on a comic um to which i basically got the first three compendiums <laughs> straight straight away and i absolutely demolished it um and you know to have you as as my 100th guest on this podcast is it's just really kind of you know completing a, a journey for me so thank you so much well my pleasure what what a what a wonderful intro <laughs> <laughs> Now, usually I ask guests uh, what you do in the world of comics. I think, I think you've given that one away already. But, yeah, <laughs> firstly, I've given that away. But secondly, I don't think that there's going to be very many people within the comics world that don't know who Charlie Adlard is. Um, but uh, that aside, uh, where, where can people find you online? <laughs> uh, thankfully, because I have a fairly unique surname it's quite easy to google me because there are no other charlie adlards out there well not in the comics world anyway so um 
I'm on all the usual, well, not all, all of them, but I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just just look up my name, and uh, I've got a website, charlieadlard.com, which was recently uh, re- revamped a year or so ago, so it's, like, shiny and new and it's everything. It's very nice, by the way. Very oh, nice. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, of course, typical, I, I spend loads of time working with, well, I didn't do it, but the, the people that did it, and do I update it? No. <laughs> do I help? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I keep saying, yes, I must update my website, but of course, yeah, anyway. <laughs> nah, it looks great, though. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, and of course, all of those links are in the show notes, folks. So go follow uh, Charlie on Twitter. Check out his absolutely brilliant website. Um, uh, as well uh, and uh, yes uh, now we can get into it um, so um, on top of kind of what's going on at the moment unfortunately um, and in, in in true uh, comics with the apocalypse style there's been a zombie outbreak of course um, and my question is for you and I'm sure that this is this is on Everything else, the yeah. top of everybody's minds um, what would Charlie Adlard do in a zombie outbreak well I remember um, somebody telling me once that Robert Kirkman obviously was was asked this very obviously this same question as as of as of I um, and I've always tried to think of something quite fancy to say, uh, apart from my usual stock answer, is, was, which is normally, um, well, I've never really thought about it because it will never happen. But um, <laughs> uh, let's hypothetically, if it does happen, I think I'd do the same as what Robert says, which would probably commit suicide. <laughs> because what is the point in surviving that sort of thing? I want, you know, having obviously drawn The Walking Dead for 16 years and uh, yeah, watched the best part of most of the TV show, you know, you do just think, why do they keep going? What's the point? You know, <laughs> so um, I think I think I might have that very similar attitude, to be honest. Sorry to sound all nihilistic, but uh, yeah. Death it's quite all right. And yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you, you're not the uh, first person just to say, you know what? I'm just going to embrace it yeah. and just go out with a bang. <laughs> yeah. Nice, quick, quick, quick bullet to the head. That'll yeah. do. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so kind of in your um, in your last moments before you say goodbye to the world, um, <laughs> your, uh, you, you just think about your your career. Um, and the first thing you, you wonder is, is where it all started. And you ask yourself, what's the first comic you remember enjoying? Well, literally, um, the, the, the first comic I, I remember is, um, I, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, I do remember double-page spreads in the, obviously in the middle of sort of classic British anthologies, Wham and Pow, um, which would have been, I assume, they must have been early 70s. And they were sort of sub, I suppose, sub-Dandy Beano type affairs. But right in the middle... They had a double page spread of Marvel comics. I, I think it was Marvel comics, anyway. Um, and you know, because I was only four or five at this time, so you know, my my memory is fairly hazy of all this. But I do remember 
you know, kind of enjoying these comics. And then when I got to those middle pages, it was it was just this, what is this? This is so much better, you know. <laughs> and it was only, you know, two pages. I, You know, again, if memory serves me correctly, I seem to remember them being in colour. But then I'm thinking, no, surely they were because they couldn't have surely afforded colour for the middle. Um so they could have been spot colour. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. But they certainly weren't just black and white. Um, and, and again, it made it more exotic because it just stuck out. Yeah, because it was the centre pages. I mean, I can't believe it was just two pages worth. <laughs> it was like 122-page Marvel comics spread out over a number of weeks, which sounds, inc- which sounds insane. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can't remember what characters they were. I can't remember anything like that. I just literally remember those and, and, and that feeling of, of, I don't know, of of just something so well to my eyes, so alien compared to the the rest of it. It was just, well, no, not alien, exotic, I think is the word. Mm. Uh, Whether I had any clue as to it was not stuff that you could get in the UK. It was stuff that you could get in the U S but all through the, you know, I'm, I'm 54, so uh, all through the 70s, and, and well, I'm going into the 80s, you know, stuff from the US was exotic because it wasn't readily available, you know, if it wasn't printed or published or produced over here in, in, in whatever fact. So I think that added to the mystique of it, absolutely, you know, that sort of, ooh, this has come across the Atlantic Ocean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> definitely and, and how how old-ish were you at this age at this well, time? I'd say it, was, it, was, it would have been the you know late 60s early 70s I presume because um, it was it wasn't until I think 72 that Marvel did the mighty world of Marvel which was the, their own reprint of their stuff so this this would predate that because I definitely you know started reading that yeah, you know, as soon as it came out, which uh, I think we will get on to later. So I won't talk much about that yet. Um, but, yeah, so it must have been very early 70s, something like that. So it could have only have been four or five, probably just starting to read comics, I assume. Brilliant. <laughs> <Where> is hazy, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> of course, of yeah. course. Um, and uh, I assume this was basically picked up at newsagents and things. Uh, it must have been. Well, I was lucky because my dad um, ran a few businesses, um, uh, local businesses, and one of them was a news agent. So I was I was lucky that whether he was picking this stuff up and bringing it back, I, again, I can't really remember. Um, but he was very formative in you know me sort of reading stuff. I do. I do see again. I do vaguely remember my dad having a spinner rack in his in in the news agent that that he he had, um, and I do remember seeing American comics, obviously just random American comics with you know puzzle books and you know other other you know, sort of weekly publications shoved into that spinner rack. So yeah, uh, and again, you know, I would totally gravitate towards those american comic books absolutely fantastic and so at that age were you drawing yeah i was drawing um not comics specifically uh again what made me sort of draw comic books was 
issue number one of Mighty World of Marvel. That that was, you know, in terms of a formative thing, that, that's probably one of the most formative things in my life was reading that one comic or, or, or starting off from that point. Um, so that would be when I was about six or seven, depending on, you know, what month it started up in, in 72. But, um, yeah, uh, but, yeah, I think I was doodling or, or, or whatever before that. Again, you know, you have to ask my mum or dad <laughs> exactly what I was drawing, you know, pre-drawing comic books, you know. Fantastic. Uh, now, um, going back to uh, our, our last moments on this planet, um, yeah. you you move on to another question, trying to perk yourself up, and you wonder what's the funniest comic or the most laugh-out-loud moment in a comic that you've read? <laughs> Well, this is something no one's ever going to have heard of, because uh, as I put to you in my initial email, this is, uh, uh, yeah, this is very specific to me and some friends of our, of, of some friends of mine. But um, when I was at uh, art college, um, uh, a really good friend of mine, he was in the year above, actually, we were both doing uh, film and video at Maystone Art College, and um, he... He sort of did comic books in his spare time, sort of funny comic books, quite sometimes quite intellectual. He had a character called Art Turkey, which uh, was basically a turkey, but instead of his head, he had a cube, uh, and he just <laughs> spouted philosophy all the time. So it was those sort of kind of interesting strips. Um, but yeah, he his name was Lawrence Burton, and um, he. He just did some insanely brilliant stuff. And I remember a couple of years, probably post-leaving you know, art college, he still carried on drawing. And we actually worked together on something uh, that never got published. This was before I broke into comics properly. Um, yeah, we stayed in touch after art college because we shared a mutual love of comics and all things kind of slightly out there. And... Um, there were two comics he, he he wrote and drew at the time. One was called Rajun the Terrible, and it was spelled R-A-J-U-N, Rajun the Terrible, which was, yeah, a purposefully badly drawn uh, Conan ripoff. And it was just one panel a page and just basically Rajun committing all sorts of atrocities uh, <laughs> to various people, you know, who got pretty close to the bone. But again, the humour derived from knowing this guy because he's not the sort of guy that you would imagine would write that sort of stuff. He was this quiet sort of, you know, funny, but in a quiet way, just kind of under the radar sort of guy. Um, but lovely bloke, you know, and <laughs> to see. And I just remember us, me, me and some other friends who, you know, at the time we were all sharing the same interests and everything, just rolling around, just crying with laughter over this stuff because it was just so so ridiculous you know so ridiculous in the violence so ridiculous in the you know cl how close to the bone what he was saying and everything you know and then at about the same time he also did a little self-published comic called good <laughs> literally just called good <laughs> and um it just had again the most ridiculous uh imagery in terms of you know it would just literally, the headline would be good in really big letters and underneath there'd be a nuclear explosion and just people's, people just shattering and stuff. It sounds really bleak, 
but it was hilarious because it was just so over, over the top. It was just so ridiculous. It just crossed the border of tastelessness back into uh, humour again because it was just so utterly tasteless that it was good. <laughs> if you see what I mean. And yeah, it's it's you probably everyone listening to this is probably scratching their head thinking this doesn't sound very funny at all. But it was, it was bloody hilarious. It was, and it's probably is still to this. I'm going to email Lawrence because I still sort of in touch with him. I'm going to eat, uh, get in touch with him afterwards and told him to listen to this podcast because this is probably the first time he's been mentioned on something like this ever. Um, but yeah, because I was racking my brains because it is a funny, weird thing with, with comics that I, I don't, I can't actually recall a laugh out loud moment with comic books apart from that you know sitting there on my own mm. you know if i've read something humorous you know you, you might get the shrug of the shoulder sort of thing you know or the smirk but um you know it, it, it's hard for comics i don't know why it's hard for comics to give you that guttural reaction that say film or tv does um perhaps mm-hmm. it's 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 probably the timing it's it's all in the timing you know you you hear something uh, or watch something, and there's a timing, and you know all all the best comedy is in the timing. <laughs> so you know, um, whereas a comic book, you're reading it at your your pace, your own mm-hmm. pace. So it's not. I don't think it's really hard. Um, as much as I love comics, I also think it's really hard for it to give you that sort of guttural reaction. Whether it's mm-hmm. and again, we'll come on to this. Yeah, at a later point, whether it's being scared, you know, you know, finding humour. You know, there's plenty of humorous comics and there's plenty of comics I appreciate for their humour. But it's not like I'm sitting there going, ah, <laughs> you know, and just slapping it down and slapping my thigh in, in you know, in sort of just just utter, utter humour. So, um, yeah, but so that's what I say, Raging the Terrible and Good are the, <laughs> the only two that... But that's because um, I read them in a group as well. And, and that's really the only time with these friends as well. We, we all got together and we would sort of look at stuff together. Uh, and you know, when you read, I'm sure, as you know, when you read stuff in a group, it does have a better reaction um, rather than on your own. Um, and really with this group of friends, and it was a sort of, shall we say, a limited period. It's not like I still get together with them. I mean, I'm still in touch with them all, but I... We don't get get together with a group and do what we did when we were in our. It's probably when we're all in our, you know, sort of mid to late twenties, going into our early thirties. And yeah, we I haven't done that since. And that sort of communal reading is, yeah, was probably the only time you did get that guttural reaction. So yeah, it's it's, it's kind of interesting psychologies going on with how you know how you read and how you sort of. You know, perceive things and you know the, the differences between seeing something live and reading something etc etc so uh, yeah but I've still got the copies of Rage and the Terrible and Good <laughs> one of these days I might post some pages who knows <laughs> please do I would absolutely love to see that yeah. Um, yeah just a quick photo on Twitter would be amazing I mean, I mean, at least just one of one of good right right I mean I always remember one one of the quotes from Rage and the Terrible and bearing in mind it it's, makes it extra funny because it's it's on like say on purpose on purposely so badly drawn uh 
Yeah, there's a picture of Rachel with this insanely big gun, just basically shooting a, a child. <laughs> Going, tired of sucking on that dummy kid? Here's hot lead instead. You know, so... <laughs> and it's just... But you've got to know the guy that wrote it, I think. that's As well. That, as right. well. That, that's what makes it work so well, you know. Um, so... Like I say, to to somebody that's not, shall we say, in on the joke, it they might just go, "What the hell?" <laughs> you know, but, this guy yeah. needs to be sectioned. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig out the pages after this chat and have a have another chortle. A hundred percent. Oh, that's fantastic to have that that memory um, and just that experience, as you say, kind of that communal reading, yeah. really kind of brings a whole new light to to reading comics um and yeah no that's beautiful no you're right yeah <laughs> excellent uh, now uh, changing gears um your your next question that crops up in your mind is what's the saddest comic or the most upsetting moment in a comic that you've read yeah well going going back to what i said previously it's it's again it was a it was a tricky one because like i say emotional reactions for me for for reading comics uh you know uh, don't go to those kind of extremities almost um and i think also especially because you know i've been a professional for so long um you know i, I have to trawl quite far back into my childhood uh, and i say that being a professional because whatever you do uh, I feel, you know, if you're part of the industry, you're going to analyse it a bit more. And it does, unfortunately, take the magic out of comic books, I, I find. In, mm-hmm. Because you are just constantly looking at the stuff and going, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Or, you know, or oh, that's a brilliant page because of something not many people would notice, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure, and I'm sure it's the same with writers. You know, they're probably just constantly analysing, you know, scripts and whatnot. Um, so have that, that said, um, I, I struggled with this one even more than reaching the terrible and good, uh, but I ended up finally just, just falling on the, the final, uh, peanuts episode strip. Um, because I think it's the only time I've read something where the creator obviously has been with it for a long time. And has actively decided to finish it at this at, at a certain point, you know, and and you know it was Schultz's just decision to retire um, at the time, and it wasn't, yeah, it was obviously it's slightly through not necessarily Ill, Ill health, but it was certainly through, um, uh, you know, um, just getting old, obviously, but. Yeah. Yeah, it was just the poignancy, the poignancy of that final strip was just, it did, it did. If it could have brought a lump to the throat, it, it yeah, it did. Um, and because I've always had that sort of emotional connection with uh, Peanuts back again, going back into my childhood, I can't really remember the first time I, I was aware of Peanuts, but it was... Yeah, it was probably in my, yeah, I was probably nine or ten or, so, or something like that. I, I started collecting it by those little paperback, you know, collections, you know, that were just like little novels, I suppose, shape. Uh, and uh, I've always been 
I've always been a bit of a collector and a completist. So, you know, every time, you know, the, a book would come out, I'd get it because it looked nice and neat on my shelf and it would run from whatever number I started with, you know, nice and evenly through to the, the latest one on the spine and, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, yeah, I kind of did relate to Charlie Brown a lot, I got to admit, uh, in my youth. Um, and because um, I was never the most outgoing child or anything like that. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, I didn't have a bad childhood by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it was always, I was always sort of, yeah, I was never up there with the cool kids, shall we say. <laughs> so I, I definitely related to his trials and tribulations. Um, and yeah, and just to have it, you know, and I read it on and off. I won't say I read it every, diligently every, every week, every month or whatever. But yeah, when, when I found out that he retired and that was it, I remember reading that last, last strip and just going, oh, wow, that is really... Yeah. How do you finish? Same dilemma we had with The Walking Dead in a lot of I was going to say, and, 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 and sorry to, to interject, yeah. Charlie. So what I find really interesting about that is that, you know, that obviously that's quite a moment <clears throat> for there to be a final peanut strip because obviously from when you were a young boy, you'd read this. And so it was kind of, it was an established part of, you know, your reading habits almost. And yeah. to come to that realisation that something so established can actually come to an end, that must have been quite... That must have taken you aback, let's say. Well, it was... Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it, it was interesting because it was obviously... I, I was... Yeah, as a reader, it was... I, I could imagine what it's like for a reader of The Walking Dead then because yeah. I was reading Peanuts... Off from the opposite side, I was the fan reading it, and then it all comes to an end, you know. So I could get, I could sort of relate to how people would react to when we finished The Walking Dead, totally. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think because, like I say, I was even though I was a big fan, I was like I read it, I suppose, over so yeah, because it went on for so many years, you know. You, you, you you came in and out of it at various points. Do you see what I mean? You know, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. There's there probably might have been a year or so. I just didn't read any of it. Yeah, just just mm-hmm. not because I didn't want to, just because of happenstance and everything. And then you, you come back into it. Uh, so yeah, the the level of um, shall we say uh, commitment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unlike with The Walking Dead, knowing that yeah, there were yeah thousands of fans out there who literally read it month after month and were totally committed. You know, was was perhaps a bit a bit. One of like, which was me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh no 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 no! It's it's again it's you you, you both did a, a sterling job um, throughout The Walking Dead, um, and it and it finished probably at the right time, perhaps. Um, and the way that you finished it was it was excellent um and but perhaps having that experience of you know the fact that peanuts finished so i guess the the walking dead has to finish well i, th- I think i think what we well what i learned anyway i can't speak for robert obviously uh but mm. i think you know looking at the peanut strip is like you just you can't end you, you almost don't end it on a big here's everyone you know yeah. you, we, 
you almost don't wind. Yeah, you, know, you literally. It's not the Brady Bunch. No, yeah, exactly. You don't. You don't sort of do like a house clearance. You know, yeah. and tidy everything up. You know, there's better ways of, of finishing stuff than that. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's slightly more of a cop out anyway. So you know, um, you know, and, and it was the same with The Walking Dead. You just couldn't, um, after so long, just sort of go. Yeah, you know, do an issue which literally just catalogues every single character and tells their story right up until you know mm-hmm. the end. You know, it's almost impossible. So you have to do something different. Um, and yeah, going back to Schultz and Peanuts, you know, it, it was it was just it was just pitched absolutely perfectly in terms of how to finish it. You know, fantastic. Yeah, and I highly recommend anybody just Google Google final Peanut strip. Yeah, it will it will come up on on Google Images oh, or something, okay. um, yeah. and uh, yeah, give it a read because it's 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 a nice. It's note nice to it's, on. it's 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 poignant yet not um not overly yeah smolty yeah which is which is perfect which was yeah all the way through yeah peanuts that's how it always was there was there was a beautiful poignancy to the whole thing yet you didn't you never you were never manipulated into sort of the obvious emotion, which was just, you know, which is the magic of the thing. Beautiful. Now going back to our last moments, uh, the next question that that comes up is what's the scariest comic or the most horrifying moment in a comic (laughs) that you've read? Well, it has to be, I know this isn't a particular com. Well, it's not a comic story. Uh, it has to be the six foot long ghost in the back of the adverts of the old comic books from the seventies when I was a kid. Um, I remember it's the only time I think I ever remember like literally knowing it was going to be on the next page, you know, and you know, turning the two pages at the same time. So I didn't have to stare at the six foot long that you could buy. I think it was six foot long. Anyway, it was bloody long. I remember it was only, it was only like I don't know something like five dollars or something, and again, it was the it was also that it was the exoticness of it because it was like something you could never have because it was from America. Uh, but I also remember thinking it's really cheap for a six foot long ghost. <laughs> when when I when I eventually dared open it and stare at the advert, yeah, you know, it, it was probably just a stupid plastic head and a lot of. You know, material that was six foot long, but <laughs> it was, yeah, I do remember as a little child, just, yeah, you know, when I, because um, like I say, when my dad had the news agent, even though throughout my sort of childhood years, I was brought up on Marvel UK stuff as opposed to, you know, the, the original product, mm. uh, I would pick up the odd American comic book. It was incredibly random. You know, it could be DC, Marvel, whatever, even another company, you know, at the time. But, um, you know, anything, I'd have any pocket money and I'd just, yeah, if I had pocket money or stood by a spinner rack, I might buy a comic book. It was it, it was simple as that, you know. So, <laughs> um, to, uh, and I think that's what gave that sort of, you know, six foot long ghost even more spookiness because I wasn't looking at it too often. You know, I knew it was going to be there because most of the adverts were the same, weren't they? They're all every in every comic book at the time, um, you know, included, you know, I always remember that. And, um, 
the X-ray specs you could get and uh, you could get, you know, like a massive army of multiple soldiers, which always sounded really appealing as well. Again, it was like for $3 or something. You just, <laughs> out, you know, you can get, you know, 20 tanks and, you know, 100 US soldiers. You just say, what the hell? Yeah, it must be so cheap to live in America <laughs> to get all that stuff for $3. Oh, I want it. I want it. But I knew I'd never be able to have it. <laughs> and and I, in um, researching what what your answer was, I, I, I managed to find one advert, and it actually said a 30 to 40-foot ghost, one of them. I know, which is pretty big. <laughs> I'll send you it later. Yeah. But also, at the same time, I found an advert for sea monkeys as well. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah, there being adverts for sea monkeys, yeah. but that kind of freaked me out as well. That was a bit freaky because they were humanoid in the adverts, wasn't they? Exactly. Yeah, and yet they're not humanoid at all. They're just like little... I remember my, my youngest son when he was... Well, he's a teenager now, but when... Uh, you know, many years ago, we got the equivalent over here uh, in the UK, and that's that was really disappointing. <laughs> they weren't humanoid, and they didn't talk to you. <laughs> that's how they get you, though, isn't it? Um, those crazy adverts. But that's interesting. That kind of it's it's the anticipation of fear, isn't it? That really builds up to the to the moment of being scared. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, like I say, it's the only time I always remember, you know, not wanting to look at the page. So I'd turn it quickly, you know, or, or try and turn two pages at the same time. So I just didn't have to stare at that uh, horrible, horrible spectre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want yourself up to that level as well, you know, knowing it's in exactly. there somewhere. You know? <laughs> Shocking. Uh, now, uh, moving on to my favourite question, oh. and that is, what is your favourite cover? <laughs> this is probably the hardest question I've got because I literally went and stared at my comic book collection for a for a bit, <laughs> thinking, favourite <laughs> cover, favourite cover, what's standing out here? Um, and I ended up... Um, <sighs> It's a weird one, this, because it probably isn't my favourite cover, but it was the only one that stuck out because of it, it, it goes with all my sort of, shall we say, design as sort of uh, aesthetics, which mm. is Bill Sinkovich's Stray Toasters number four. I think it was number four. Anyway, it was, it was basically the first time um, it was an all black cover. I remember that, you know, and it was that kind of spot printing where the, the artwork was, you know, sort of glossy. But it was all black, black on black, basically. Right. And I remember buying that. I was buying American comic books by this time, and and it was prestige format, wasn't it? The old, the good old, the good old prestige format. So it was a little spine and and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just being blown away by how adventurous that cover was in terms of its design. You know, I was like, whoa, that's really, yeah, it's something else. How how that's really daring to do an all black cover. And I do remember seeing it in, in the comic book shop that I was going to at the time. And it really stood out from everything else. Now, whether that was indicative of, of how I perceive covers now, which is my, my basic sort of um, mantra on comic book covers is, uh, yeah, 
bugger the story. It's 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 basically you've got to make your book stand out from the crowd, you know. So mm. um yeah, how do you do that? You know, and it's my biggest bugbear in a lot of ways as well, because I, I think, you know, ninety percent plus of comic books fail in that. Um right, and I'm right. not I'm saying I'm putting myself in that category, you know. I've I've certainly yeah, yeah. not, you know, every cover I've done has not been this beautiful designed you know, thing. Um, but, you know, I, I do try and come from that um, position. Um, it, it's it's hard to sort of really put into words exactly what I'm trying to trying to do or, or what I'm trying to discover in, in other covers. But, you know, I'm, I'm much more attracted to something that's simple but really elegant and, and just stands out as something, you know, and, and it's hard to describe, like I say, what, what exactly that is. Uh, I am attracted for starters to very, you know, basic colors on covers. I mean, I think that works a lot. And, you know, it's not just with comic books. This is going across the board into all sorts of publications. You know, you look at most magazines and they, if they're of a certain genre, you, you lump them all together whether it's, you know, model railways or bloody, I don't know, um, you know, hello type magazines. Yeah. They all have the same covers. And you, you do just think, why, why is everyone just wanting everyone else? Why does everyone else, every publisher, why do they want their magazine to blend in with the other magazines? Sure. The idea is, is to stick out and, and look different. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I did have, you know, Going, going up sort of off-piste a bit here, but I did have uh, a, a kind of a run-in uh, with um, Metal Hammer magazine a few years back. I was asked to sort of do a cover and design a lot of stuff uh, for the band Slipknot, and I'm not really into heavy metal at all, but um, it was like the lead singer, Corey Taylor, was going to edit this um issue of uh, of metal hammer magazine and um you know he, he was a big comic book fan and basically they got me and him together uh down in old wembley arena to talk wow. to talk about um the the making of this this issue and everything and um it, to cut a long story short cory was brilliant he was really up for any idea because the last thing i wanted to do was your classic you know heavy metal cover uh, I said, look, let's do something different, you know. And in in the end, what my idea was to do a, a, a sort of an Andy Warhol pastiche, because if you're familiar with Slipknot, there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's yeah, nine yeah. members of the band. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, that's interesting. What can we do with nine members? Um, so I just thought of this kind of Marilyn, you know, Andy Warhol style Marilyn Monroe, you know, screen print <laughs> thing where you just had loads and loads of, you know, images of the band members and just repeat, repeat, repeat. So it's this really intense blast of color, uh, which I thought would look really interesting for a magazine and have it stand out on the shelves because every other music magazine would just have a shot of the featured rock star uh, with a lot of blurb down one side, you know, the, the obvious stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that was my idea. Corey thought it was a great idea. Uh, so did the clan, apparently, who's another member of Slipknot, who's also a big <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and then it all sort of came. It all sort of fell. It sort of fell apart because, should we say, the uh, the, the suits weren't that keen. Yeah, they were the ones that right. wanted. We have them all just stood in a graveyard and blah, blah, yeah, something like that. All oh, right. Uh, <laughs> In the end, it was a compromise cover between my idea and, and you know, the more, you know, sort of, shall we say, conservative ideas. Uh, and, yeah, did it did it stand out? It probably stood out a bit more than your average cover or, you know, to, to music magazines, but not as much as I wanted it to. Um, but, uh, yeah, so going back to something like Stray Toasters, it was that, yeah, it's probably not the best drawn cover in the world, you know, uh, but... For me, it was, I think it was just more formative in the fact that it just ignited something in me of, of, of how you could do stuff differently rather than just go for the, you know, rather than just being pleased that you've done a nice painting. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Which, because there's, I, I think that ignite, ignited the designer in me in terms of you just thought there's more to it than just doing a nice image. You know, it's, it's a yes. That's the main image, but it's how you position your characters, how it's all coloured, how it works with all the fonts, how yeah, etc. etc. There's so much more. And you know, the more I've gone on with you know, my career, the more I felt like I want to be involved. Similar to my friend Sean Phillips. Yeah, he's totally involved with the design of all all his books, and that's kind of what I want to do now. Um Perhaps not as much as Sean is because he's got the technical knowledge, whereas I haven't. But, you know, I want to be able to say, no, it, it, this, this is the font. I want the font there. This has to go there. This is I want this on the spine. I want that there, that, you know, all, all that. Because at the end of the day, all the elements have to work together. Um, so, yeah. And, and like I say, I think Straight Toasters was the start of me realising that. That's brilliant. And again, it's it, it's great to have something to hang kind of a realisation on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the only cover. I mean, there's there's probably hundreds of covers I, I adore. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, but it, it would just take me a, a week to pick through all those <laughs> and, and, and choose, you know, and I'd never choose a favourite one. Otherwise, I'd probably end up choosing my top. 20 in no particular order <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and, and you know, yeah i think i'm sure you could appreciate i haven't really got the time to do that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely charlie not a problem but no that's a, that's a great choice because uh, as you say it's a it's a striking cover um and that certainly stand out on a on a comic comic bookshop shelf yeah, I mean exactly. I mean my uh, just again just to just to uh, just go off, off off on another one just for a second. Um, one of one of my favourite artists of all time, and he's not an art; he's a designer more than an artist. Is um, Saul Bass? Um, I don't know if you know who that is. Not off the top of my uh, head, no. He, he he did. I mean, probably the most. I mean, you you would know his imagery because he designed things. He designed a lot of stuff for Hitchcock. Um, so, like, you know, uh, he did, like, Vertigo was probably his strongest poster design. Um, so he, he was sort of around the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. He was he famously storyboarded and designed the shower sequence in Psycho. Uh, he, wow. did, he did 
uh, a poster for Anatomy for the Murder, which is probably one, if you Google that, it's probably one of the most iconic images you know, you will see in terms of design and poster design and everything. Um, the Shining, I just found. He did The Shining, yeah. Yeah, The Shining is another, another poster mm. he did. Uh, but you look at his stuff and it's just, he literally takes all the elements down to their most basic level, um, which is incredible. I think, you know, incredibly brave uh, thing to do. Um, I mean, he was massively in demand back in the, back, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he, he certainly had a look and everything was that real strong, um, you know, couple of colors and that's it. Um, yeah, most of his stuff had that, you know, sort of look, you know, he, he, he kind of designed the famous sort of jaggedy hands that you'll see in so many, uh, images, um, you know, incredibly influential and, and, you know, a lot of people would be surprised to hear that he's one of my biggest influences because, you know, it, it doesn't really feature that much in my work, but in a lot of ways, that's what I strive to do is try and, yeah, try and also fail quite often (laughs) is to try, yeah, take my work down to its most basic level because I think that's where you should sort of end up at, you know, is like no extraneous marks. I mean, one of my favourite art, my my favourite artist of all time is probably Alex Toff. And, you know, he was a master of that sort of, you know, chiaroscuro and, and just... Just, just why tell the story in twenty lines when you can tell it in one? And you know that that is the the nub of of great art. I think is is whittling it down to that that kind of those those elements and still be brilliant and um, you know just just trying to get that magic of of one beautifully drawn line is enough. You know, and, and going you know literally stepping back from your work, which I'm terrible about. You know, is <laughs> especially when I'm doing covers and I've been doing quite a lot of variants recently and, and I'm terrible about it. I, I think I spend twice as long on a cover and, and half that time is literally just staring at it going, right. is that enough? Is that enough? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. knowing when to finish is, is half the battle with drawing covers. So, and you know, looking at something like sort bass, it, it's, it's like that man had taken that to the nth degree and he's mm. conquered it completely. Hundred percent, and and what a lot of people don't aren't perhaps able to appreciate is kind of the time and effort that's actually gone into simplifying that sort of thing as well. Because you know it, it takes obviously years of experience and expertise to be able to do that sort of thing. Um, and you know, some people might kind of fob it off as like, well, I could do that. Yeah, you know, and it's like, well, no, you okay. couldn't. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of, I guess it's it's like when, and I'm not sure if this is a good analogy, but it's like when a plumber comes to to fix something in your house, and it just takes them like two minutes. Yeah, and they you know, something. yeah, and they go, that's it, done. You go, yeah, that's sixty you? quid, please. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's taken, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's taken, you know, years and years of experience just to come and knock that radiator in the right place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's absolutely true, and and I think what, like I say, what a lot of people don't appreciate because they just, you know, I completely understand why people gravitate towards. Uh, really highly detailed, highly rendered artwork, or or really intricately painted stuff. Because if you if you haven't got an artistic bent, the, the thing you appreciate is detail, 
because a lot of work's gone into it. But I'd argue, equal, like, yours, like you said, as much work has gone into what something like Saul Bass or Alex Toth has done, because quite often I can imagine they're probably just staring at their work for as long as they're not drawing it at the same time. Like I say, mm-hmm. working out whether that is, you know, the, the, the level they should, you know, leave it at. Um, and, and that is the, you know, half the battle is learning how to walk away from something going, that'll do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic uh now uh moving on to another of my favorite questions and that is what's the most meaningful comic to you right well we've talked about one so we can we can brush brush that off quickly (laughs) (laughs) Um, one was the mighty world of marvel number one um purely because um it was literally the first time apart from as i said before those center spreads it's when i read the stories properly i was old enough to read them by that time um and yeah it was just oh this is it this is what i want to be reading uh, you know I, I throw away my dandies and beanos etc etc i want to read all this sort of stuff uh and it was. It was the the gateway to me drawing comic books, and then the, obviously leading on to what I do now. So it would literally means everything to me in terms of how how I started off. You know, you could not. It is probably the single most influential thing outside of you know parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the single most influential thing on my life. As simple as that. Um, but the other thing which probably arguably had less of an influence but it's kind of still interesting because it still fueled a big love of something else um was my introduction to asterix um primarily the first asterix book i read which was asterix and the big fight um around about the same time as reading mighty world of marvel I do, i'm not sure which one came first again memory hazy blah 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 uh, <laughs> my dad always used to go to this petrol station and the, the whatever the company was at the time was running a promotion where you filled your car up enough times you got a free sort of petrol station edition of an asterisk book um they were the same size same format and everything like the european versions the french versions but um i think they had the I think they'd just done something to the spine and they'd obviously put the logo of whether it's Shell or Esso or whatever it was, you know, on the back. But that aside, it was almost exactly the same as the French versions. Uh, but yeah, and I badgered my dad to go, if he's going to fill the car up, he's got to go to this pension station because I want another Asterix book sort of thing. Uh, so I, 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 and I remember they, they, the promotion was, um, four, four, four books from the collection, which was Asterix and the Big Fight, Asterix the Ghoul, Asterix the Gladiator, and Asterix the Legionnaire. So those was those were the the four. And I, I was really weirdly uh, attracted to them. You know, even though I was reading Marvel Comics, which is almost kind of the polar opposite, because obviously Asterix, you know, the original format of Asterix was in strip form. It was like two two tiered strips, which would appear. And then be epi- yeah, and that would be the episode. And then they'd print out another two tier strip in in the French magazines at the time. So the format was completely different. Obviously, it was in colour, whereas the Mighty World of Marvel was in black and white. 
which was attractive, I suppose. But what I gravitated to is the the idea of doing cartoon characters with very realistic, heavily rendered, accurate backgrounds. Um, and little did I know, obviously, at the time, my love, I was being fed influences by you know, American comic books from one end and French comic books from the other. And it was only really until kind of perhaps I was a teenager at some point that I realised that Asterix was in fact French. And there was a whole <laughs> world of French comic books out there which I hadn't explored. Consequently, you know, sort of discovered people like Mobius and realised that, yeah, they were French as well. And it's like, oh, God, there's quite a big industry over there. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and I do remember gravitating as I got older, more and more towards that sort of comic book look, as opposed to the American comic book look, um, you know, going, going less, you know, getting less and less interested in superhero adventures and more and more interested in, well, at least the visuals of French comic books. Cause obviously there wasn't that much translated, you know, you got Asterix, Tintin and a bit of heavy metal and that was pretty much it. So, and I remember going to Angoulême, the big comics, French comics festival in January uh, in the early 90s with some friends that were really into French comic books uh, at the time, or shall we call them the Dan Désiné? Uh, and <laughs> I remember it was like the scales falling from my eyes because I'd never seen anything like it. It was just incredible to go to this festival, which is as big as San Diego, um, took over this whole town. But just comic books, not a media, not a multimedia event, not a pop culture event. It was just pretty much 95% French, Franco-Belgian comics. And that was it. Uh, and it was incredible. I mean, I just went on this massive spending spree the first couple of times I went because, you know, it was just like you just constantly finding stuff. Going, oh, my God, this artist, this artist, ah, you know, um, and just totally... Oh, totally loving it, and I've that's that's my love affair with uh, Bond Désiné, basically. And I literally go apart from obviously this year uh, or last year and this year, unfortunately. No, hang on, what am I talking about? No, last year I went because it wasn't a pandemic. I go the only aside from Thought Bubble and uh, the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, uh, the only other regular yearly comic art comic show I go to is Angoulême. I, I do go every wow. year because I love it so much. It's great to be immersed in that stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously since then I've done my own, you know, a couple of my own French comic books, um, you know, in between, in between Walking Dead, Walking yeah. Dead, Delcor, my, the publishers of the you know, Walking Dead, you know, I, I, you know, it's, I've made no secret of it. I think they published the, the nicest produced versions of The Walking Dead, and that includes America. Um, they've wow. just got uh, they've just got uh, a real feel for quality over there. You know, they don't skimp on the quality. And yeah, again, it goes down to design as well. They've got a slightly less cliched, comic-y design sense. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it it's. Yeah, I, I love that that part of the uh, the industry, and yeah, and it was oh, Asterix and the big fight was my little like similar to Mighty World of Marvel was my little gateway into that whole whole world. 
That's awesome. Um, and yeah, no, that's just hearing your enthusiasm and passion for um, for French comics and just and just for comics at large as well is just inspiring and it's it's one of the reasons that i really love that question because you can you can really see who's got a real passion and enthusiasm yeah. for it and obviously that that shone through with you just then charlie so i really really appreciate that oh thank you i mean the, the, you can't you can't beat the, it's it get yeah it sounds awful you've just gone on back said you said words like passionate enthusiasm. You know, you, sometimes you feel it gets beaten out of you the older you get. Right, and yeah. It is, you know, I've got to admit, the, the older I get, the less and less times I suddenly pick up something and go, oh, my God, this is, you know, this yeah. is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I can guarantee there's a, a couple of times every every Angoulême that I will find something new and just go, whoa, can't read it. I can't bloody speak French to save my life. I've literally got shelf loads of French bon designés that I I have never read. <laughs> Just <laughs> appreciate the art. Amazing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. And speaking of uh, kind of undiscovered treasures, um, what's the most underrated comic that you've read? Well, I think it is underrated because it seems I don't know whether how much I'm under the radar it is nowadays. Uh, but um, I've always said that Lazarus by Greg Rucker and Michael Lark is, is well, I always say undiscovered, but it's it's a gem that, you know, uh, amongst so many comic books. Uh, I, I read, yeah, I started reading it, you know, right from issue one. I mean, it sort of came out, you know, in that time post, you know, Walking Dead, when suddenly Image was starting to attract, shall we say, the big names, you know, mm. uh, and, you know, in, there was a, like a three or four year sort of, um, sort of part of, of the early, shall we say, Walking Dead years where Image suddenly, you know, were putting out, you know, you know things like, uh, uh, I can't, my mind's gone blank. <laughs> Completely blank. All these comic, comic books by you know, name creators, yeah, which which they right. haven't really done before. And I always remember Lazarus being, yeah, another one of them. And I've always been a fan of of Michael's work, that's for sure. I loved his stuff on Daredevil and of everything else he's he's done. Um, so I, I knew I was going to pick that up because I hadn't read that much of Greg's stuff. I've got to admit, at the time. Uh, but um, yeah, if, if there's one comic that sucked me into a world, one hundred percent, and I just I'm, my mind again boggles by Greg's utter commitment to world building. You know, he must have he must have one of those cliched walls where you know you've got lots of paper cutouts of things with lots yeah. of string attached, yeah, cork boards and pins yeah, and, and, and stuff like that. Because the level of, of research he must have had to have done to to make do that story. And it's one of those things you just think it's a crying shame that it's not become a TV series. I I, I know I think I because I know Michael quite well, and I, I remember him saying to me last time he was at the lakes. Uh, well, the last time the previous year to, to last. And um, I think, yeah, they were talking about a TV show, but I don't know how far it's gone down the line. But I do just think if there's one book 
And yeah, I'm sure neither of them set out to do it because it would make a great TV show or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's one of those kind of things where you just think, yeah, it's a no-brainer, this one. There's so many comic book properties that get made. And you just think, really? Why? Why that one? And yet Lazarus just sort of languishes there, just thinking, God, this would be perfect, a perfect sort of, you know, uh, TV show. But that's that's by the by, you know. I, I'm not reading it because I'm thinking that. I'm reading it. It's a bloody good story. Um, it's beautifully illustrated. I mean, again, Michael is is just a phenomena. You know, the level again, the level of detail is comparable to the level of detail that Greg puts into his yeah world building. Yeah, Michael's doing equal world building with the artwork, um, and it's just a crying shame they're sort of gone down to these quarterly editions because you know I, I loved it when it was monthly, <laughs> but I could understand you know totally why he can't. Yeah, produce a monthly comic book because the level again, the level of work is just absolutely insane. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, because I've uh, unfortunately I've, I've I haven't I'm yet to read Lazarus. However, based on that recommendation, Charlie, it will be going straight to the top of my reading list. Oh, okay, so. cool. I mean, are you familiar <laughs> with Michael Michael Lark's work? I I wasn't so much at all. Um, but researching, um, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I've just um, I've been in touch um, a few months ago because because uh, I know what what he gets. He gets a guy to do sort of um, Google SketchUp uh, type um, environments for him and stuff. So he yeah. gets that perfectly realistic room, whatever he wants to do. And uh, yeah, I've just literally I've just been in touch a few well, a few months ago anyway with the, the guy that's. Let's done all this stuff for Michael because uh, I might shove a bit of work his way for a project. I'm think I'm, I'm hopefully going to be doing in the next sort of couple of months. That uh, I there's a there's a lot set in a certain thing, right. <laughs> shall we say? And you just think actually, yeah, getting it done in in a sort of a Google SketchUp program would be perfect. I've never sort of worked with that before, uh, but yeah, the idea of being able to rotate the environment around and set your characters in because yeah I'm, I'm very much similar to Michael I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm very much the sort of person that if I'm going to draw somebody in something I want them to fit perfectly in that environment I don't I don't want to fudge on the shall we say the perspective to force them into an area like that mm-hmm. I, I want it to be like if, it, if they're going to be sat in a chair in a room I want it all to work do you see what I mean? Rather than the slightly fudging it, you know, so your camera angle is at a weird angle. And yet, in the, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly looking at certain stuff going, ah, perspective's wrong there. Not necessarily the perspective on the, the, the environment itself, but the characters within the perspective is wrong. You know, I'm thinking that, that person, if that was right, he'd be standing on four sets of bricks, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, little stuff like that, just, yeah, it's just me, but it gets to me. Uh, so, um, yeah, having having a sort of a guy doing loads of sort of Google sketch things yeah. is, is yeah, kind of quite appealing for me, you know. So 100%. I just, and having that preparation in place so that you can kind of dive into it straight away. Yeah, 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 just rotate it to the angle you want, you know, print yeah. that out or whatever you want to do with it or, or just mm. do it. The Cintiq and uh, yeah, yeah, just just draw that environment just as is, and then just set your characters in that. Yeah, it, it 
it's a it's a nice nice workaround i think it's a great tool um to to, to have and it's it's just gonna it's gonna raise the bar in comics more and more yeah the, the people do that i think yeah yeah well it's just like michael's a really good proponent for it yeah you look at his that's stuff right. and whoa yeah, that's mm. that seriously detailed and but not just detail that's the thing you know it goes back to what i was saying about you know it's not just the detail it's um i mean he's done it perfectly in sync with how the story should how the story is and should be you know the stories of you know it's obviously a, a set in the near future, a fantasy, inverted commas, slight fantasy, you know, setting because the Lazari are these sort of, you know, whether they're created in labs or these kind of indestructible people. But it's not a superhero thing, obviously. But um, but at the end of the day, it's near future and it's set in as realistic a time as as possible. So. Yeah, you, you've got to, from Michael's point of view, you've got to have your characters set in that kind of environment, that sort of realistic, um, you know, you can't, you, it's just, it would be ludicrous to go crazy with, you know, sort of start drawing Jack Kirby style machinery or, or things like that, you know, it just wouldn't work with the story. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it all works just, it's just pitch perfect. Excellent. Now, going from such a specialty like that uh, to uh, something that perhaps a new reader would read, and so what comic would you recommend to a friend who's never, ever read comics? Yeah, well, you see, you've got to get them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, how many people out there would recommend instantly some superhero comic? You know, uh, mm. it would be, you know, um, and, I, and I just think that would be slightly, I don't know, disingenuous because that's not all comic books are. Um, and and if you're trying to um, recommend something to someone that's never read comic books, but they're aware of the MCU, for instance, which, let's face it, most of the world are now, yeah. um, the problem with it's 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 sort of good for our industry and it's also incredibly bad for our industry because it just forces people to think, you know, that, Oh, is this what comic books are? It's just a bunch of guys and girls running around, you know, with superpowers punching everybody, you know, that's, yeah, it's, you know. and cracking wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm as big a fan of the MCU as, as anybody. I've been watching sure. Division and loving it, you know. But yeah, it's been great. You know, and the fanboy in me is like, oh, it's so cool, you know. But um, yeah, it was, you, 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 Joe, average person in the street is is going to look at that and go, oh, so this is comic books, is it? You know, and then they'll make an informed decision. Uh, would they want to read about that stuff? And the answer is probably no, because they've seen it all in the cinema, because they'll just assume the stories are the same as as uh, what they've just watched. So what I would recommend somebody is something that's just not about any sort of fantasy, because that's what would be the general perception of people that don't read comic books. So I think I would recommend um, The Now of Brown, um because by Glyn Dillon, because um you know, obviously I could recommend a, a French comic book because there's a lot of, you know, normal, you know, 
non-fantasy set French comic books, but the problem with that is it's in French. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you want to sort of, obviously, I assume you're going to recommend something to someone that's an English-speaking person, so you need to recommend something, you know, that's, that's English. And now Brown is pretty quite French-European in its approach of, how it, uh, of, of its storytelling and how it looks and everything, yet it's written and drawn by... A British person, you know, someone that speaks mm-hmm. English. So you've got, you've got the equivalent in, uh, you know, French, the Franco-Belgian sort of ideal, uh, coupled with, you know, sort of, um, yeah, obviously something that's that's slightly more uh, English-based, UK-based. Um, so I'm, I'm getting a bit muddled here, sort of what I'm saying, but. Yeah, at the end of the day, you want to recommend something that's not superheroic, exactly. based, and and that and obviously and it's relatable. It's yeah. re- totally relatable. It's drawn semi-realistically, I think, which yeah. also yeah. would help with with most people, um, because yeah, you as much as I love peanuts, going back to peanuts, you could recommend something like that, but then. That strip cartooning, and I'm not saying that's not a thing, or I'm not saying that's that's not part of what we do. I believe we're all one big lump of cartoonists. I call myself a cartoonist. I don't call myself a comic book artist because, you know, we all do different levels of characterization at the end of the day. So, you know, I think Schultz going from Schultz to Jack Kirby, we're all what we're all connected. Um, but yeah, I think I think. From what we're trying to do, com- you know, trying to show them a comic book is, I think, think something like now Brown is that is just has that little sweet spot. I mean, obviously, it's brilliant as well. Yeah. I haven't actually said that, you know, I've sort of intellectualized it a bit of why I would show it somebody, and I've sort of made it sound like it's more of a academic exercise rather than a. You know, here's a fantastic story, but it's it's a fantastic page turn, and Glynn is just you know what he did with that was a was incredible. It's a shame he's bloody designing costumes for Star Wars now, as opposed to drawing comic books. But <laughs> <laughs> pull your finger out, Glenn. Yeah, come on, pull your finger out. Get back into comics because obviously that's so much better paid. <laughs> of course, um, and and that actually has that has a fantastic cover. As well, yes, it does, it does actually. Well, the whole thing is beautifully produced. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, I, I always applaud the bravery of a publisher that will publish something as a one-off volume. Uh, it's as simple as that because it's very easy uh, in our industry. It's slightly old singles and albums sort of thing back back in the day. You know where you know eventually you know the singles became a promotion for the LP. It's it's similar to how comic books function now. You know, the single issues are your promotion for, you know, your collection, but you also make more money because you publish it twice. And so anyone that's publishing it as a single volume without releasing it as a series, you know, I, I, I applaud and I want to see more of that stuff because it works in Europe. Um, why can't it work over here? Yeah. So yeah, so that's another that's another that's another great thing. But yeah, it's uh, I mean I suppose it's um, now Brown had the benefit of basically being published by a book publisher as opposed well the comic arm of a book publisher as opposed to a comic book company. 
so, yeah, they, they obviously perceived it as something slightly different and a slightly different market for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that kind of makes it interesting as well. Uh, the slight, the slight differences when you get published by, you know, Marvel DC image or whatever, and, and the way they approach promoting and putting out your comic book as opposed to, I don't know, um, Jonathan Cable first, second or whatever the, 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 the little small comic arms of these big publishers that, um, you know, obviously have a different approach to how to promote your comic book. And, you know, I, I assume there's probably more copies of now of Brown in Waterstones as they are in your Forbidden Planets, for instance. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely fantastic. Now, uh, coming on to our last question in regards to comics, and that is if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? It would be, going back to a good old favourite, Obelix and Co. (laughs) (laughs) The actual book, not Obelix and all the other characters. There was was one, the only Asterix book, weirdly, not called Asterix and, but my favourite Asterix book of all time is, is funnily enough, called Obelix and Co. Um, And um, I I just think it's the pinnacle of Gossini and Udazo's you know, sort of work. Uh, they they were both functioning at the peak of their sort of creativity. Uh, it's probably late seventies by this time, um, and it's just a glorious pastiche on business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a book for you know inverted commas kids, and yet it's so much more than that. And it's beautifully drawn. Udazo's a genius in my in my opinion, uh, so is Gossini, you know, obviously the best, yeah, Udazo, as, as, as much as I think he's, he's fantastic, was never as good a writer as is, you know, as his friend. Uh, so unfortunately, you know, when Gossini yeah, passed away in the, you know, many, many, well, many, many years ago now, you know, when, when Udazo took over it, uh, yeah, it was never the same, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, I'd say Obelix and Co is the pinnacle. And, Asterix is just eminently rereadable. And and the other good thing about Asterix is it works on two levels in terms of there's the French version, which you can read if you can be bothered to learn French, <laughs> like myself. Uh, and um, Or like myself. I don't know which way around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and also, you know, the Anith, Anith, and also Anthea Bell and Derek Hockeridge it's amazing that I just those names were imprinted on my memory banks. The people that translated the books are geniuses in themselves because you they had to make that work, you know, to be funny in English and not just the dialogue. All the names as well had to be changed to to work, you know, as a pun in English as well. So those two were amazing, um, and I just think it's ah, oh, it's just. There's something, there's something in it for everyone. <laughs> and I, just love, I just, I just love Asterix, you know, as much as, as like I said before, as much as perhaps arguably the mighty world of Marvel was that singular, singular moment, which opened my whole world up. I would still gravitate back to good old Asterix as my go-to, you know, comic strip. Because I don't know, I just it's just just I've got this 
wonderful, I don't know, just love of it. Just resonates. Yeah, it just resonates. Yeah, and, and it's, it's not nostalgia. It's not just nostalgia. I still read it now. Um, right. And I've got to admit, the, 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 new, the new writer and artist, you know, the first one was a bit rubbish, but they are getting better. It's kind of almost the same as the original Asterix books. Yeah, when they first started, they just get better and better, you know, with time. And they settle in, they, you know, and, and, you know, kudos to, to um, uh, Dalgo, the publishers who, you know, who are obviously, you know, sticking with them because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think they got roundly slagged off for the first one. You know, they could have easily have just gone, well, let's get somebody else. This ain't working. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, uh, it's still, it still has that power to entertain <laughs> still. <laughs> And just one time before you say, see, see you later to the world. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, and, and on that, um, what weapon, tool or useful item would you like to take with you into the apocalypse as well? Well, I need something that I have to commit suicide with, won't I? Really? Yes. <laughs> Any sharp, a sharp instrument gun would be preferable. Uh, to uh, yeah, anything that ends, yeah, a nice quick ending would be, would be preferable. I don't know. Sleep. Loads of sleeping pills, that'd be quite uh, quite useful. <laughs> Overdose on that, I don't know. Make sure make sure I take enough so I don't wake up feeling even worse. Um <laughs> doing, or, doing a Rick entry to the to the zombie apocalypse. Oh god, no, no, thanks. That would be that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Um I don't know, uh, a very sharp pen nib for defense. <laughs> I've got some of those. <laughs> Craft knife. <laughs> you're well equipped i do i do have that that the, when they release the larger version of the toy negan bat uh from the walking dead obviously uh lucille yeah i don't just say lucille the negan bat um yes. when they released the bigger version of lucille when i when i got sent that and i took out a packaging i remember thinking this is quite weighty you can really hurt yeah. Really do some damage. Yeah, do some damage with this with this toy. Uh, so I'd use that. Well, that's what I'd use to wade. Yeah, sort of. Just just keep the zombies at bay while I take a load of tablets just to knock me out. <laughs> and whilst you're reading uh, Oblex, yeah, okay, yeah, like... just to finish reading that and then take your <laughs> sleeping pills. See you later. Exactly. I've got to make sure I finish it though. I can't get. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, commit suicide halfway through. I'll have to get right to the end. So yeah, I'll start popping the pills about yeah last ten pages in. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Charlie Adlard, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, learning your comics for the apocalypse. My pleasure, Sam. No, I've really, really enjoyed it. Sorry for rabbiting on for so long. <laughs> oh, I've absolutely um, relished it. It's been a, a wonderful joy listening to to all of your choices and your reasons why um, and your insights as well um it, it honestly has been an absolute honor um and uh moving on from that um you mentioned you got a, a, a fairly big project coming up that you can't talk about obviously but are there any other projects that you can talk about yeah well i've been beavering away uh for men- well since the walking dead finished funny enough um uh, on a book called Heretic, uh, which is written by my old pal Robbie Morrison. Um, and um, Robbie, uh, 
moved up to where I live in Shrewsbury about five or six years ago uh, from London. Um, and, yeah, so we meet quite often. And I say, and, yeah, when, when, when we could meet, uh, you know, a few years back, I told him, yeah, he's one of the only people that knew that The Walking Dead was finishing before it finished. Wow. Because... Well, basically, I said to him, I said, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to have to work together. Now you live literally just down the road. And, um, yeah, so we started concocting something. And I wanted to start it pretty much as soon as, you know, I'd finished Walking Dead. So uh, so that's what I had to tell him, basically. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, it's a 16th century set murder mystery uh, set in Antwerp at the height of the Spanish Inquisition. So it's kind of, yeah, slight departure from what I normally do, but that's why I love it, because I don't want to go back to, well, I'll go back to horror, but I certainly wouldn't go back to zombies, never again, that's for sure. But, you know, uh, it's variety is what I want to do. And um, I've always said, you know, what what inspires me is a good script. It's as simple as that. I don't care what the subject is, what what it's about or anything like that so long as it's just really well written and inspires me that's what interests me so it was a real challenge to do something i've never done a obviously a such an intense costume drama before basically uh which required quite a lot of research as you can imagine um yeah and uh the the only problem with it is we um we got so involved with the story, we forgot to look for a publisher. I <laughs> <laughs> literally finished it and thought, you know, we really should get this published somewhere. So we are, we are, I'm slightly wrong. I mean, I, I jest a bit. Right? We did talk vaguely to some people, but only on a kind of, a, you know, sort of a what if situation. Um, so yeah, uh, I have, I have sort of talked to somebody now about it and it will get published by someone. <laughs> I, I, obviously I can't say because it's not been 100% confirmed yet. So, um, so hopefully it will be out by the end. And then will that be an ongoing series or no, 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 is that a one and done that, type thing? That's what we want to, that's what I want to do. What I talked about before is the right. doing it as single volumes. So it's a 120 page single book. Uh, so that that's that's how we're publishing it. We did if and are about whether we we're going to serialize it, but it just didn't feel right. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I want I want to go with my gut feeling on stuff now and how it should be. Um, I mean, I you know, I'll be the first to say I feel incredibly, incredibly privileged to be in that position because you know. The, the majority of comics people are not in that position. You know, I'm, I've been very lucky with The Walking Dead that it's enabled me to be financially stable, to be able to literally joke about working on a comic book and not even think about a publisher, you know, for yeah. you know, as part of a incredible? year and a half, you know, yeah, <laughs> basically unpaid. But uh, thankfully that's the, that's the luxury The Walking Dead has given me to be able to do stuff like that um and yeah that's kind of how i intend to carry on with my uh with my professional career so i'm vanishing back into obscurity folks (laughs) (laughs) 
I love it. That's absolutely fantastic. I look forward to to seeing that. Whoever publishes it, whenever that is. Cool. I'll be very vocal about it as soon as everything's confirmed and I'm allowed to talk about it, that's for sure. <laughs> that is brilliant, Charlie. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to be to be on this uh this podcast it's been a real pleasure and hopefully our paths will cross uh, a comic con one day oh one day yes <laughs> there will be there will be comic cons and festivals one day <laughs> you never know it might happen <laughs> well uh, excellent thanks charlie you take care my pleasure thanks very much sam bye bye then thanks again to charlie for being on comics for the apocalypse it was an absolute honor and a pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Charlie's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's website at comicscene.org for comic news, the comic club, and other fun sequential art stuff. And lastly, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.